Well, peace be with you. We're going to be in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 13. We're picking back up in our Matthew series that we've been in for quite some time. If you've been visiting or new here, we've been in Matthew for a long time, and it's been awesome and amazing. And so now we jump back in, and we're rounding third, really. We're heading home in terms of the book, which is kind of sad for me. This is a fantastic book to preach through. Uh, so Matthew 26, 1 through 13 is what we're reading. Jesus just finished doing his Olivet Discourse, or his sermon. He, he, he's kind of done it, just done his last sermon on the Mount of Olives. Uh, so he's just kind of finished that up, and we're picking up from there. Uh, this, I call this section, 1 through 13, I call this section Palace Plots and Awkward Baths. It's really good. You're going to love it. Um, it. It's super helpful. All right, you ready? Let's read it. Uh, here's what it says. Here's what Matthew lets us know. When Jesus said, had finished say, all these th- sayings, uh, so that was the sermon on the Mount Olives, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's talking about himself. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, uh, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster, alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, She has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, that's good. Uh, Not too long ago, my six-year-old and I were in her her bedroom having a conversation. She had she had told a little fib at school, and, and there we were issuing out consequences for that. And one of the things that I said uh, was that, like, hey, as Christians, we just don't lie. Like, if God is real, if, God, if we believe in God and he is real and he is who he says he is, then there's just no reason to lie. Like, that's a, just a fundamental thing. Like, and I'm like, if he isn't real and if, he doesn't, if you don't think he exists, then lie all you want. Yeah. I mean, that's what I said. She looked at me, my six-year-old. And she says, she says, okay, Dan, um, what if I don't want to be a Christian? Right? PK, working it out early on. Right? And I did pretty good. I didn't freak out. I, I you know, I, I didn't respond with, well, you're going to be a Christian whether you like it or not. Um, no, I said, okay, that's fair enough. That's fair. Right? It's fair. Yeah. Pastor Barry's like, man, it's fair. It's fair. So I says, I says, well, I, 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 I said, well, I, I guess I asked, I'm going to ask you a question. I went Jesus on it, right? I responded to the question with a question. 
And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, why would you not want to be? I mean, whatever caused you to not want to be a Christian? And then she says, she says, and this is wonderful. I mean, this is like right here. Here's a sermon for you. She says, well, because I don't think I fully understand it. Which, by the way, is like half of all of your conflict. You know what I mean? Like you actually just don't understand, but you're too embarrassed or... You, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're so anxious. You don't, you don't want to say, well, I just don't understand this person. So you just blame shift all the time. As opposed to just saying, well, I just don't think I understand where they're coming from or the situation or whatever it is. So she says, well, I don't think I fully understand. And I said, well, I said, that's fair. And I said, that's my job. So my job is to actually help you understand. So if you can fully understand it, and to some degree, you would think, why would I never not want this? Yeah, so I'm bragging. I did wonderful, did I not, with my six-year-old? Thank you. I have blown it nine times out of ten. Like, shut up, go to bed. We'll talk about this tomorrow. Um, I think Matthew, like who writes this, his version of, of Jesus and the gospel, that's kind of what he's doing throughout the whole book. Like he's just saying, if you see Jesus for who he is, you're going to throw your whole life at him. Your whole life. Don't go, don't go half-hearted. Go all in. Full-blown. Wants, Matthew wants to turn you into someone who orients your whole life toward Jesus. Um, and, you know, to be a someone who worships Jesus. And by worship, I mean, like, wholehearted devotion. To worship means it's your telos, your aim. Like, whatever you worship is your telos, your aim, your hope, your top hope, your top love, your top priority. And so Matthew's saying, hey, I want you to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, not half-heartedly. Either go wholehearted in or just walk away. Don't go in between. Now, if you're a Christian in the room, you're like, amen, brother. I like that. Wholehearted devotion. Let's do it. And I'm like, yes, but man, let's be honest. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus is difficult. Like it's got, it comes with its challenges. And there, there, those challenges, the challenges that you'll face Christian, I seek true devotion, devotion, wholehearted discipleship to Jesus. The challenges that you're going to face as a Christian, you're going to see right here. Or you did see. You just read it about him. They actually pop out for us. Uh, okay, so you're going to, this story sheds light on that and it also strengthens us for those challenges. So that's what we're going to do. We're just trying to learn what it means to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. Um, while being aware of the challenges that we're up against. Now, there are four characters in that passage, four little vignettes in the passage you just read. Who are, what were they? Uh, you've got the, um, the chief priests, right? The chief priests and the elders. You could call them the Bible teachers. That's fair. Call them the Bible teachers. So the Bible teachers, what's their deal? Well, they don't like Jesus. That they've, they're making that pretty clear. Like he threatens everything that they know about how they see the Old Testament and he threatens kind of like their whole cultural way of life. So they're plotting to kill him. And then you have the woman. She's not named. John actually names her, John 12. There's like an identical story in John 12 that you can read that, that, is, that probably is this same woman. He calls her Mary. Um, so, so this woman, she's not named here in Matthew's version. Um, and she clearly loves Jesus, right? She just loves Jesus. So that's the second character, the second vignette. You, and then you have the third, the disciples, right? The disciples, the best friends of Jesus, the close followers. They love Jesus, uh, but they're kind of being the bullies here. 
right? You, they're, they're being the bullies. They're being the know-it-alls. It's what a lot of, of us men do. And then uh, the fourth character um, is Jesus himself. And uh, he's doing what Jesus does, which is he, he surprises us with the way he responds to things and moments. Um, and he, he responds with such depth and, he, and such compassion. Um, so those are the four kind of characters uh, that Matthew's sandwiching together here. So which character, like if you're reading this in one little section, which little vignette would you focus on? You're like, I want to read Matthew 26, 1 through 13. Which one would I spend all of my time and say, or which one, which one is Matthew highlighting? Now, if you're like churched up, you're like, Jesus, yes, yes, uh, Jesus, mostly, yes. Um, but, you know, he's the hero, yeah, but, but, but the, the woman certainly is fascinating, is she not? Maybe that's where you went right away. You're like, it's the woman. I mean, come on. Uh, she inspires us with this kind of reckless love. That's what I call it, reckless love. Um, reckless devotion, man. She's all, but, but really, here's the thing. My point in all, telling you all this is to say, each character in the, the section that you read, they, they matter to the whole story. They each tell a part, all right? So each character is teaching us something about worshiping Jesus and like what it means to be, what, like what wholehearted devotion is. All right, so here's your first lesson. First lesson of the day, you ready? The Bible unashamedly is always communicating to you. Always communicating through its stories. That deep devotion to Jesus, it trends towards the fringes. It just goes that way. Like, that's where real devotion happens, typically, most often. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew sets the scene, right? Uh, he gives you three subtle or he gives us some, some of these subtle, uh, meaningful context clues. Simply put, location and people always matter. When you're reading the Gospels, pay attention to the location. Like if you have a study Bible, like this is a study Bible, and you got little maps and you're like, but boring. No, they're actually really helpful. Location matters. Like if you, you might have to do a little homework and I get that, do some Google stuff on it, but it's helpful. Location and people matter. Well, location and people matter in this text. And, and, and the reason why I'm saying it is Matthew's, man, this guy, he is a brilliant writer. Um, he has sandwiched this thing in between. Because if you notice, what happened right at the very beginning? Plot to kill Jesus. Now, we didn't read it, but there's something that immediately happens after. What happens right after it? Does anyone know? You can just scan down if you've got your Bible on. But it's Judas plotting to do what? Kill him. And, and so Matthew, Almighty slams this right in the middle. He slams right in the middle of it this. This woman truly worshiping him. And, and so... You know, Jesus has just told his disciples, look, my time is up. My end is coming. And the whole point of that is just to say, like, none of this is surprising Jesus. None of this is random. Like, he is in full control. He's delivering himself up. Um, and, and, and while at the same time, he gives us, you know, kind of Matthew narrates it and is letting us know while this is going on, um, we read this. This is verse 3 and 4. The chief, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the what? It's underlined, palace, palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest him, right, and kill him. So the men of privilege, the men of connection, they at least have religious fame, for sure. So the, the Christian influencers of their day, uh, they're in a palace. And where do you find Jesus? 
Where do you find Jesus? It's right next to it, right? So now when Jesus, this is verse 6, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Matthew does not have to include that detail. He does it on purpose. And he puts them right next to each other. He wants you to see it. And then what happens there? Verse 7, a woman, while he's in this leper, he's probably a former leper, to be fair, uh, but he was once a sullied guy. Lepers, outcasts of society. So verse 7, a woman, that's important, came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head and he, as he reclined at the table. So Jesus here is near, is near his death. He's rounding the corner, and he's not in the palaces, but in the home of an outcast of society, right? And he's getting this unexpected, awkward, perfumed dousing uh, from a woman, which anointing was a common way in, in their day of expressing honor and privilege. It was a way, you know, a lot of times um, people were anointed before their coronation for their kingdom. So she's just expressing love, devotion, honor to Jesus. And this was extravagant, by the way, just super extravagant. Mark 14 records this story. Uh, he adds some different details. Uh, he includes the kind and the amount of perfume that this was. And it's, he, it's there we see that it was worth over 300 denarii. Another place in the scripture tell us what one denarii is basically a daily wage. So guess what she's doing? She's dumping her, uh, a year's salary on his head. A year's salary. So in case you're wondering, why are the disciples freaking out about this? This is 30, 40 grand dripping off his face, you know? So it would have stunned the room, no question. This woman has just shown this, like I said, this reckless love and devotion. She's dumping like her life savings maybe on Jesus. Um, now Matthew, who's always deliberate, if you haven't figured that out by now, He's not adding these details at random. He's contrasting it all. It's all, it's all contrasting work. He puts the plots or, uh, in, the, in the palaces and this worship in the house of a leper with a woman. So, you know, think about it. Je and this is common. Jesus launched his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. That's the beginning of Matthew. And then he comes down from the, that sermon, Sermon on the Mount. And who does he interact with? Does anybody remember? This was a long time ago. This is talking about Matthew chapter 8. He first goes to, he interacts with who? A leper. So like the first encounter Jesus has as he launches his ministry is with a leper and he cleans him. And then, and, and then here at the end of his life, he's rounding the corner, he's nearing the end, he's going to lay his life down and he's with who? A leper. It's just over and over again. Uh, he's always hanging with people like this, the, the sick and the sullied. And throughout his life, or really throughout the whole gospel, that uh, the versions all form that we have, it's so often what? The women. It's the women. The second-class citizens of the day. I'm not calling you second-class citizen. For a century called you a, a, a second-class citizen. But in the Bible, the Bible is so fascinating because uh, that's part of the reason why we know that these guys are telling the truth because they include these stories about women, which was kind of taboo at the time. Um, it's the women that so often seem to really get him, like get Jesus. And, and, they, and, and, and don't get me wrong, like the, obviously the disciples are men, they matter too. So I'm not super, I'm not trying to be super woke here. I'm just, I'm just saying that like 
the women do get these really precious moments in the story, don't they? I mean, seriously, think about it. It's a woman that gives birth to Jesus. Now you're like, well, what else would it be? <laughs> well, okay, all right, fair enough, but it's God. He can do whatever he wants. He can be like Swamp Thing, just come out, right? Of, like, he can do whatever he wants. He can come floating down a river, like, and it's like, okay, where'd this come from? We don't know. But no, he has a mom. He has a mom. And then, you know, it's, 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 it's a woman. It's one of the outsiders, a Canaanite woman, one of the first ones to really kind of, in Matthew's version, to, to be like, he's the son of David. Like, she gets it. It's, it's a woman who anoints him for his burial. It's, it's women who are mostly women at the cross, like when he's dying. They're the ones being loyal. It's women that want to go to the tomb first. And guess who the first missionaries are? Don't say men, because it's not. It's women. They're the ones that he appears to first, and they're the ones that go tell the men, because the men are scared. So it's just over and over and over again, you get these little doses of this throughout the Gospels. Okay, so what, it's interesting, and maybe, is that it? Is it just interesting? Well, what's it call us to? What's it call you to? Well, it's not that, the point is not that women and lepers make better disciples. That's not what I'm saying. Although apparently more women join membership classes. But... I repent, I take that back. <laughs> it's not that women and lepers make better disciples. It's just that wholehearted discipleship typically, typically flourishes in the powerless, the underclass, the poor, and the fringe of society, all right? And that's a huge challenge to us because we're kind of a church that I don't know if we make up that demographic necessarily. Mostly, at least. I don't know. I don't know everybody here. And so, does this truth mean that you should move to the fringes of society, to the grimy places? Not necessarily. That's not what I'm saying. Is, does it mean you need to become poor to get close to Jesus? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I, I think it, it just means that we shouldn't expect that deep devotion to Jesus. Like, if that's what we really want, if that's what you really want, don't expect to put you in the limelight. Don't expect to put, now I get it, nowadays we have this thing called like Christian influencers and celebrity Christianity, which kind of just turns my stomach, to be honest with you, but we should not go into uh, deep devotion, dive into Jesus and give everything we got for him to become uh, famous or to be in a place of privilege and glamour. It just doesn't work that way and we need to be aware of it. So don't be surprised, essentially, is what I'm saying. Don't be surprised that it leaves you feeling like as you try to work out and flesh out what it means to be really devoted to Jesus. Don't be surprised if in moments you're feeling like an outcast, especially in a year like 2020. Um, don't be surprised if it makes you feel misunderstood. Don't be surprised if it makes you feel misunderstood in relationship to the society around you. Like many Christians right now, currently, and some of you may be aware of this, or probably are aware of this, many in Christian culture are concerned. They're very concerned in what they see in the world and in this country in particular. 
they sense and feel this steady drift in government maybe or in culture at large, in the media, whatever it is. They see this steady drift from biblical values. They see this steady drift and they're concerned about religious freedom, what's bearing down on us. They're, they're concerned about maybe the oppression of people of faith. They're the concerned about a loss of voice, of a voice at the table, you know what I mean, in leadership. Um, and I get that. Like, there might be a day. You live long enough, there might be a day where you might not get the job you want or you might not get the promotion you want because of certain Christian convictions. That, that, that could happen. I mean, as, as a pastor, like if the Lord wants to keep me around long enough, there might come a day where because I won't say or affirm certain things, whatever they are, I could get in trouble. That could happen. And so these concerns are fitting. Like, I get it. Like, I really do. I think, it's, I, I think the fact that we're aware or we should be careful or concerned about these things and the drift of, of society, the concern there. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that does not compute with the Scripture, and that is panic. I sense panic sometimes in Christians. And I'm like, did you read the Bible? Like, stop acting as if you were the first. Like, there are Christians in Christian culture right now freaking out about a drift in society or drift in the government or whatever it is, and they're getting angry about it as if they, they were the first ones that's ever been treated this way. <laughs> no. You're in a long line, brother. You're in a long line, sister. And quite frankly, even though we shouldn't be, we shouldn't want to be oppressed and we shouldn't want uh, all these things, and I'm not against Christians in leadership, Christians in power. I'm not against it. It just typically goes really bad for us. You know? And it's like, you know, Christians created cancel. Just saying. We were the ones that invented it. So, you know, it's just, I, I'm not, I, I, I'll get on a tangent. I better not do that. But I'm, I'm just simply saying we, we need to be aware of these things and say, hey, how can we be, I think this calls us to a sobriety and an encouragement, an encouragement as we feel these things coming on. We, we feel a certain sense of concern. And those of us who really seek to worship Jesus, man, it is in the places where Christians get put in oppression or in the outcast or whatever it is. That's all of a sudden, man, where things start to flourish. Like, Christians really flourish there. Like, Jesus will, like, don't panic as if Jesus and his church is somehow going to go away because we get pushed out of the place or the marketplace or the leadership or the role or whatever it is. We don't look to be outcasts. I'm simply reminding us that if our devotion to Jesus puts us on a trajectory that leaves us out of certain social circles, depending on where you're at or your age in life or what you're dealing with, if it puts you out of possible job promotions, out of places of popularity, man, take courage. As hard as it is, take courage. That is where you find Jesus in the Bible all the time. And so as much as you might feel alone, I'm just simply saying, you're not. You're not. That's why you should find a church that really seeks out to, to try to devote themselves to Jesus because it's a bunch of lonely people that need each other and that feel like outcasts. And so Jesus and those who truly worship him are drawn to the lonely and they're drawn to the powerless. Okay, lesson two. 
Listen to it. Here you go. Ready? It brings out this true devotion. It can bring out the best and the worst in us. Now, after I wrote that, I was like, I don't know if that was the best way to say that. Like the worst in you, but let's just go with it for now. I'm not rewriting the sermon at this point. So, so who's the hero in the story? Who's the hero in the story? Well, Jesus. We already said that. Okay, but who's a great example? The woman. Right? The, the woman. She's a great example. It's pretty clear. Well, who are the bad guys in the story? Well, the chief priests, the Bible teachers for sure. That's pretty obvious. But who's coming in a close second? <laughs> the disciples. Yeah, the disciples. Uh, <laughs> At least that's what the picture Matthew's painting, for sure. Matthew wants you to know. He, he, Matthew it does not ever do the disciples any favors. Uh, after the woman lavishes Jesus with her love, we read this. This is verse 8. Uh, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Um, in other words, they were frustrated. Frustrated, and they were critical of her. And they say, why this waste? This could be sold for a large sum of money, right, and given to the poor. So like I said, it's like watching 30 or 40,000 drip down Jesus' head, maybe even onto the floor. In the context, right, in a time period of a mission field that they're trying to, to, to take on with not a lot of resources. So, you know, of course, like they have this reaction, this feeling about this. Now, before you get upset with the guys, before you get upset with the disciples, here's my advice. Be more curious. And in general, I would say that before you judge anyone. Be more curious. Look for the humanity, because there's all sorts of humanity here. Are they simply jerks? Well, they're like you. It's complicated. You have good moments and you have bad ones. This isn't one of their shining moments. They're like you and they're like me. They're in process. They're disciples who are in process. So they're trying, but sometimes they get it wrong. And so I actually think what, um, they're making a mistake, okay, for sure. But for reasons that make sense, they, they really do. And I think it's fair to say that they're trying to be what I would call theologically precise. And here's what I mean. They're, just, they're trying to work out truths that they've already learned. Have they heard something like this before? Doesn't this ring like eerily similar to other things that you've heard? When they're thinking about, well, this all this money. You could have given all this money to the poor. Where have you heard that? Didn't Jesus say something almost identical to this to a young ruler? Sell everything you have and give, your, you know, give it all to the poor. Then you can be perfect. That was a while ago in the book of Matthew. I mean, so they've heard things like this. That was Matthew 19, the rich young ruler. Now, to humble us even more... It's been a couple weeks because we had Easter in between. What's the last sermon these guys just heard? <laughs> the last sermon that Jesus just preached. Pastor Kevin James came up here and preached it. Anybody remember? Anybody here? Can we remember back two weeks ago? It was about feeding, helping the poor. They just got done listening to Jesus preach a sermon about taking care of poor people. That in the end time, you're going to be judged by what? Did you feed people? Did you visit them? Did you give them a drink? Now you're all of a sudden, you're like, oh my gosh, that's right. He just preached about the poor. And now these guys are like, oh, you could have given that to the poor. And they're like, that's right. We were listening. You see what I'm saying? So before you beat up on them, they're trying to be faithful. They're trying to be good disciples. 
Ask yourself, are they wrong in what they're saying to the woman? Yes. But it's misguided attempts at being a really truthful, devoted disciple. Everybody in the room, apart from Judas, but everybody in the room wants to be devoted to Jesus. And the woman in love with Jesus is at her best. She's just at her absolute best. And the disciples are just showing their shadowy side for the moment. And you have your shadowy sides, and so do I. In this moment, they've put principles over people. You know what I'm saying? They've, they, that's what they've done. And principles are great. We should live by principles. They have fought. They're fighting for a truth, helping the poor. But in the process of doing that, they've started bullying the person in front of them. And so often, that's what we do as Christians. We, we've got the truth in mind, but the person in front of us just doesn't matter anymore. Because the truth and the principle matters more than the person. Wrong. Wrong. Sometimes you're wrong, right? Even when you're right. You know what I mean? Uh, sometimes the best of disciples who are standing up for truth because they're trying to get it right can end up being wrong. You know, like I, I, I've seen over the years how easily uh, devoted disciples, de- devoted churches even, for the sake of trying to love people, right? They really want to love people. They drift from hard truth. You know, they just don't really preach or look at places in the Bible uh, that challenge society and culture. And so you could call this, I, I know this is an, an oversimplification, but you could just call this the liberal church, the liberal disciple, whatever you want to call it. You call it the blue, blue evangelicalism. But I've also seen how easily right? Easily devoted disciples and churches for the sake of truth become so unloving in their theological critiques. You could call this the more conservative red church. This is the red evangelicalism. I know you find yourself somewhere in there, but truth and love are never at odds with each other, are they? They're not. How can there be? How can there be? How can there be love when underneath we're living in lies for the sake of getting along? And, and, and how can we be truthful if you're the truth teller? Like, how can there be truth? How can we be truthful to God and His Word if we belittle, bully, or mock people? Love never does that, or emotionally distance ourselves, even. Real love disagrees while emotionally gets close. That's hard. That's really difficult. And Jesus, of course, embodies this. I mean, just go read 1 Corinthians 13. You had it right at your wedding. (laughs) Love never does that. It never never puts truth and love at, at, at odds with each other. I'll contrast this in a precise way to be true to the text. There are some people, there are some devoted disciples who devote themselves to the, the soup kitchen. You know, you could think of that proverbially, like the soup kitchen. But they, that they distance themselves from the sacraments uh, and the public worship of Jesus, from exclusive claims of the gospel. They distance themselves from that, but they spend a lot of time at the soup kitchen. And there are some 
there are some who lead prayer meetings who wouldn't dare miss the importance of systematic theology, but they can't be, ever be found at a soup kitchen. The story, I think, kept in its whole, wakes us up to these blind spots. And in Matthew's, I think, waking us up to our own self-righteous delusions, and we all have them at times, and calls us to honesty. I think that's the call here. Be honest. Let's be Like, if you want to be truly devoted to Jesus, ready? Step one, get more honest. Get more honest about yourself. We are really good at being honest about the other person. That's an amen. That's a, that should be an amen. Yes. We're really good at being honest about that person. And not so good about being honest about myself. That takes work. But that's true devotion. That's what Jesus calls us to. And, and so wholehearted devotion might feel countercultural at times. Absolutely. It puts you in that. And it may put you in disagreement with people. But here's the thing. Um, it may put you on the fringes of society, but it should not make you cold. You, you see what I'm saying? Like some disciples are finding themselves pushed out of circles, whether they be just social or power or whatever it is. And now they're cold because of it. When it's like, no, 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 no. Jesus looks at you and says, you're blessed. Warm up, Christian. So it shouldn't turn us into someone who's harsh and quick to criticize the other side, whatever other side that is. All right, lesson three. Ready? This is the last one for the morning. Your devotion to Jesus may not always make sense, like what you're doing, trying to do. It may not always be clear, but it will always be used. It will always be used. So after the harsh criticism, Jesus steps in and he does what he does best. He beautifully cleans up the mess, <laughs> right? Um, so we start in verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, whenever, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's so good. So what's happening is the disciples, I'll just put it in some other language to freshen it up for us. The disciples ask, why did you waste that? And Jesus looks at them and says, why are you hurting her? The disciples are seeing this, and they're saying, why are you being irresponsible with this money? And Jesus looks at them and says, why are you being irresponsible with this person? Jesus doesn't just offend her. He reinterprets her. Isn't that cool? Do you see that? Like, it doesn't actually jump off the page. But he, he, he actually is reinterpreting her and her act of devotion in a moment of humiliation. There are some scholars that are even like, you know, had she walked in the room and said, Jesus, would you like for me to dump out my life savings on top of your head? He'd be like, no, 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 go feed the poor. But because she did it anyway, and now these bullies are humiliating her, he's going to clean it up. See what I mean? Six different scholars. I verified. I'm not smart enough, so I always do my homework. Six different scholars on this scene 
I was reading up on them, and uh, not a single one that I could find, at least, says that this woman intended her anointing for the purpose of preparing him for burial. That's what you might be assumed, because Jesus said it, but Jesus says stuff all the time, and then you're like, I did? In other words, that she loves Jesus so much, she wants to honor him. She just reaches for what she has and what she knows. You know what I mean? Like a child. Um, so she just, what does she have? She has expensive oil. Well, that's what he's getting then. So maybe she lacks awareness. Maybe she hasn't thought through all the angles. This may have even been incredibly inappropriate at the time. You know, a woman coming into the room with a bunch of men, first century, it's not really common. I, who knows what the dynamics of it are. Um, maybe she hasn't thought through all these angles, but, but, but she wants to be loyal. She wants to honor him. She wants to please him, and she wants to express her love for him. Well, now that it's done, and she's standing here humiliated, Jesus doesn't just offend her, but he reinterprets her. He takes her act of love and rewrites it into something not just precious, but perfectly useful <laughs> to the work he's doing. So something that was just an incredible act of intimacy and love, that's what I think she was thinking in her head, Something between her and her Savior, Jesus turns into a piece of history that will be remembered forever. And it will be meditated upon and preached about for centuries. That's incredible, guys. Like, the disciples, can you imagine their face in this moment? I mean, you know, she does what she does. They're like, oh, are you kidding me? And then he looks at them, says what he says, and then they're like, sorry, oops, didn't know. Which you wonder, you know, it's right after this that Judas walks out and plots to kill and says, what do you give me for him? I think that this made Judas mad. I think this made Judas mad. I think Judas was like, enough of this, dude. He's not helping the poor. He's not setting up our kingdom the way I want. Enough of him. Instead of selling Jesus out for 30, 40 grand, he sells Jesus out for 4,000. I'm preaching next week's sermon. But isn't that crazy? It's right after this. I think Judas is watching this go down and he's just angry. I think the other disciples are like, sorry, we got it wrong. We don't know. And then her face, like I said, he says what he says. And then I can imagine she's like, I did. I, I prepared you for burial. She's thinking, I just love you. I just, lo I just love him. I just want to be devoted. He's worth everything. She's not necessarily being strategic. She's not trying to be famous. She's just trying to be faithful. And that's enough. Man, that is everything to Jesus. So I think this just shows not just that Jesus has great compassion on our lack of awareness, our misguidedness at times, but also he's got this incredible creative generosity towards you. It's just unbelievable. I mean, just like throw yourself at Jesus and he'll work it out. You don't have to have all the answers. And we're kind of control freaks. 2020 showed that. Like Jesus, think about this. Jesus could have said what she has done will be told in memory of me and my sacrifice and my love for this world. And that would have been totally perfectly fine for Jesus to say that. But that is not what he said. That is not what he said. Instead, he says, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So what I'm saying is that she made her whole life about Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm making my whole life about you. That's unbelievable. What kind of God does that? Like, what kind of Savior does that? Here's the, what I would say. A God who's offering you rest. We've talked about that a lot. 
a God who is saying, just trust me, relax in me. You don't have to have it all figured out. Some of you think it's all on your own shoulders. It's not. You do the best you can, and you give him your best, and you love him. I think there's a song in Frozen 2 that's something like that. <laughs> but, so at, look, as you come to communion today, as you come to the little cup representing Jesus' blood and the little wafer at the top representing Jesus' body broken, the Lord's table, as you come to that today, Here's what I want you to think about, okay? And we're taking communion. When we take communion, what we're doing, if you're new to that, is we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. But here's what I want you to think about, all right? Just give me five seconds. I want you to think about what know-it-all-ism do you need to lay down? What know-it-all-ism? I don't mean like give up your convictions. I just mean the posture of know-it-all-ism. What know-it-all-ism do you need to lay down? And, and, and here's the other thing. Think about the restlessness that you feel underneath with all the what-ifs and the decisions that you're dealing with, because some of you probably have a lot of decisions to make, some of them hard. The restlessness that that's causing inside of you. Here's what I want you to do as you take communion. Let's pray and let's ask God to teach us to relax in him, to relax in him, and to show us how to just do what is best, you know, to do what is the most loving thing in the moment, like today. Like what's the most loving thing to God and to neighbor today and not worry about how it's going to turn out? Because I promise you what this shows is he, he'll write it into something really beautiful, something that you didn't see coming. All right? That's my encouragement. If you're visiting here and you're new to communion, take that communion class and we'll help you out with that. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we give you thanks. Teach us to relax in you, to rest in you. It's not going to be by the will of our discipline, right? But by us falling in love with you and your great compassion. That will lead us into change and it will lead us into the kind of discipleship that you're really calling us to. And so help us to do that. We, we really, we love you and and and. and we're thankful for our good moments, Lord, and please forgive us for our bad ones because we have them. And give us the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it when it's happening so that we can say sorry and we can do something different. Teach us to do that as a church and as a community. It's in Jesus' name that we always pray. Amen.